Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your friend, your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. One of the things I've noticed from the fellas who, uh, who work on the, who've been working on the house, you know, I've been having some construction done, these are good southern gentlemen. You know, these are these are just true sons of the South as they work indoors, work outdoors, work on the stuff. And there seems to be a kind of a there's a mismatch a little bit between, let's say, the working class Southern gentleman and what he sounds like and the more, uh, well, I don't know, white collar salmon trousered fella and what he sounds like. And it's kind of, you know, my George accent has never been anything to begin with, but I've been listening to these guys a little bit, trying to understand. They speak, they kind of, they kind of speak from, uh, from down, down in the throat a little bit. How you doing? Yeah, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? But that, that doesn't, that, there was no Southern on that. There was no Southern spin on that. How you doing? Morning. Morning. You know, and then the more upper crusty people, they kind of speak more, more from the throat. Well, Michael, how are you today? How are you doing, Michael? How are you today? Nice to see you, Michael. Glad you could come in. That kind of thing. I don't know. I've never... Oh, shut up, Squash. Shut your mouth. Get out of here. Go on. Go on, you rat dog. Go on, you little rat. Ugh. Terrible animal. That's what he is. My accent work has never been anything to be proud of. That is for damn sure. Uh, and you'd think, having spent a little time in Savannah at this point, it would have gotten better, but not not really. Morning. 
Morning. Morning. Good to see you. Hey, morning. Yeah, I mean, they seem like they seem like nice fellas. Quiet. I'll tell us, you know, quiet. No, they talk to each other, I guess. They don't they don't talk to the they don't talk to the boss man skulking around, inspecting their work, looking at stuff. They probably hate that I'm there all the time because they don't have a job. So I'm just sitting there in the house watching them work, you know. I try to keep out of their way. More for my sanity than for theirs because, you know, it's embarrassing. When you, when you hire people to work on your house, it's embarrassing that you can't do the work yourself. I mean, that's just my own, you know, degraded masculinity. But it's, it's true to a certain extent. You know, when you, when you bring in tradesmen to do trades work, and they're good at it, you know, and they're doing good work. And you look at it and you go, oh, I could never do that. You know, these guys know how to do everything. I don't know how they know. I don't know. I don't know how they know how to do everything, but they did. They do. I mean, I guess in the, in the trades, in the construction trades, there's basically two skills. There's, there's tearing things apart and putting them together. And it seems like I could probably handle the tearing things apart aspect of it. That I could probably do okay. But it's the putting things together half that, uh, just seems challenging beyond all comprehension. I don't think I can do that. Even just the simple act of measuring something confounds me. I often find myself, you know, I can get like within an inch or something, but you know, if I have to measure something to like within an eighth of an inch, I always get kind of nervous. Is that a common thing? I always feel like, oh, I'm screwing this up. I'm just doing, am I, am I making the pencil mark in the exact right place where it's supposed to be? Did I, did I get, is it just before the line or just after the line? Is it right on the line? Did I screw it up? And then inevitably I try to, you know, cut wherever the line is and I screw that. Like I just can't do anything. I mean, I probably could if I had practice and a mentor Nick Offerman came along and said, hey, Michael, you know, let me teach you how to make a canoe. Like, you know, maybe I could learn how to do it, but it would take me longer than most. That's the thing. My brain just doesn't work in a way that suggests the manner in which things come together to form a whole logic and such. Gears turning. You ever see those gears turning questions on standardized tests? You know, there'll be an arrow and it'll point to A and it'll be a gear and then it'll go, and then and then there'll be a B at the other side of the gearbox, and you're supposed to determine which side, which way B would be turning because A is turning one way, and then which way which way does B? I could never figure that out. Never a clue. Now, I know it should be it should be simple, you know. The gear turns one way, then it's turning the wheel the other way, and then that's turning that way. And even as I describe it, I'm getting confused. Fortunately, I'm a genius when it comes to literary interpretation. I mean, without that, I would be lost. Heathcliff has uh, gotten himself in some trouble at the end of the last episode. That poor boy always getting himself into trouble, isn't he? Kind of our own Huckleberry Finn, that Heathcliff. You know, he's kind of like an American Huckleberry Finn. And uh, the the Earnshaws and the Hinleys came back from church there in the wintertime and in their finery. And what do they do? And, and, and Heathcliff has gotten himself all gussied up. Mrs. Dean, and she's she's been puffing up his pride and saying, oh, you're a handsome lad, you're a handsome lad, and and Heathcliff maybe is starting to believe it a little bit. Maybe he's starting to believe that, you know what, maybe I'm not a worthless piece of shit. And maybe maybe there is a future for me and Kathy here. Maybe. But then what happens? Hindley walks in and says, yeah, get out of here, you, you dumbass. Don't let me catch you here till after dinner. And keep your hands out of the tarts. And he didn't mean that metaphorically or euphemistically. He meant literally the fruit tarts. Don't take any fruit tarts. And and uh, and then Master Linton 
said, uh, in, you know, the kid made fun of his hair. And then what did Heathcliff do? He seized a tureen of hot applesauce and dashed it full against the speaker's face and neck. And then the kids started crying, of course. And then Isabella and Catherine came hurrying to the place. So that's the last of it. And that's, that's where we ended last time. And so now we are going to feel the repercussions of that action. You can't just go around throwing hot applesauce at people, even if they say something shitty about your hair. That's, that's a lesson I've learned the hard way. So let's pick it up with Wuthering Heights, Chapter 7. Mr. Earnshaw snatched up the culprit directly and conveyed him to his chamber, where, doubtless, he administered a rough remedy to cool the fit of passion, for he reappeared red and breathless. I got the dishcloth, and rather spitefully scrubbed Edgar's nose and mouth, affirming it served him right for meddling. His sister began weeping to go home, and Cathy stood by, confounded, blushing for all. "'You should not have spoken to him,' she expostulated with Master Linton. "'He was in a bad temper, and now you've spoilt your visit, and he'll be flogged. "'I hate him to be flogged. I can't eat my dinner. Why did you speak to him, Edgar?' "'I didn't,' sobbed the youth, escaping from my hands and finishing the remainder of the purification with his cambric pocket-handkerchief. "'I promised Mamma that I wouldn't say one word to him, and I didn't. "'Well, that's a lie, isn't it?' Edgar, you little sniveling shit. I promised Mama that I wouldn't say one word to him, and I didn't. Well, don't cry, replied Catherine, contemptuously. You're not killed. Don't make more mischief. My brother is coming. Be quiet. Give over, Isabella. Has anybody hurt you? There, there, children, to your seats, cried Hindley, bustling in. That brute of a lad has warned me nicely. Next time, Master Edgar, take the lawn to your own fists. It will give you an appetite. In other words, next time, uh, beat the shit out of him, like I just did. <laughs> uh, I'm a little sleepy, I'll be honest. It's, you know, because of the worker and as, uh, the workers here and everything, as I said. Last time I've been recording at night. Maybe it mellows the mind a little bit. But we've just finished supper time, and I'm a, I'm a bit sleepy as I record... And uh, my own appetite, now satisfied from a dinner of chicken thighs and broccoli with a little homemade parsley sauce. The little party recovered its equanimity at sight of the fragrant feast. They were hungry after their ride and easily consoled, since no real harm had befallen them. Mr. Earnshaw carved bountiful platefuls, and the mistress made them merry with lively talk. I waited behind her chair and was pained to behold Catherine, with dry eyes and an indifferent air, commence cutting up the wing of a goose before her. An unfeeling child, I thought to myself, how lightly she dismisses her old playmate's troubles. I could not have imagined her to be so selfish. She lifted a mouthful to her lips, then she set it down again. Her cheeks flushed, and the tears gushed over them. She slipped her fork to the floor and hastily dived under the cloth to conceal her emotion. I did not call her unfeeling long, for I perceived she was in purgatory throughout the day, and wearying to find an opportunity of getting by herself or paying a visit to Heathcliff, who had been locked up by the master, as I discovered on endeavouring to introduce to him a private mess of victuals. 
So yeah, I mean, we know Kathy's. Kathy's got a good heart. Everybody knows that. You know, even Mrs. Dean knows that. Come on, Nellie, you know better than that. Everybody knows Catherine there. She's soft on Heathcliff, you know. It's her, it's a, he's her playmate, her boon companion. And who knows, maybe more. In the evening, we had a dance. Kathy begged that he might be liberated then, as Isabella Linton had no partner. Her entreaties were vain, and I was appointed to supply the deficiency. We got rid of all gloom in the excitement of the exercise, and our pleasure was increased by the arrival of the Gimmerton Band, mustering fifteen strong, a trumpet, a trombone, clarionets, bassoons, French horns, and a bass viol, besides singers. They go the round of all the respectable houses and receive contributions every Christmas, and we esteemed it a first-rate treat to hear them. After the usual carols had been sung, we set them to songs and glees. Mrs. Earnshaw loved the music, and so they gave us plenty. Catherine loved it too, but she said it sounded sweetest at the top of the steps, and she went up in the dark. I followed. They shut the house door below, never noting our absence it was so full of people. She made no stay at the stairs head, but mounted farther to the garret, where Heathcliff was confined, and called him. He stubbornly declined answering for a while. She persevered, and finally persuaded him to hold communion with her through the boards. So there's the, there's the Christmas carolers come round to Wuthering Heights with their bass viols and their singers and their clarionets. And uh, as gay as the songs are, Catherine says, oh no, they sound even better from the top of the stairs. And there she goes, up, 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 past the landing to the garret where Heathcliff, miserable, sits ensconced, probably knees up to his chest, shuddering at the world, cursing the day he was ever brought to this old pile. And what are they going to talk about? Who knows? But Catherine and Mrs. Dean is leaving them to have their conversation in private as she should. I let the poor things converse unmolested, till I suppose the songs were going to cease and the singers to get some refreshment. Then I clambered up the ladder to warn her. Instead of finding her outside, I heard her voice within. The little monkey had crept by the skylight of one garret along the roof into the skylight of the other, and it was with the utmost difficulty I could coax her out again. When she did come, Heathcliff came with her, and she insisted that I should take him into the kitchen, as my fellow-servant had gone to a neighbor's to be removed from the sound of our devil's psalmody, as it pleased him to call it. So, okay, so I, that's a clever little wordy there. Psalmody. P-S-A-L-M-O-D-Y. And, of course, Joseph believes that all music is of the devil. A Shia Catholic to, uh, to steal my friend Jim Gaffigan's joke. I told them I intended by no means to encourage their tricks, but... As the prisoner had never broken his fast since yesterday's dinner, I would wink at his cheating, Mr. Hindley, that once. So, they're going to go down. They're going to have a little din-din, a little Christmas supper, maybe some leftover goose, maybe some of that hot apple sauce that's been spilled on the floor, maybe some bread pudding. Who knows what they're going to have? But good old big-hearted Catherine has escorted her boon companion, Heathcliff, down to the kitchen for a little yum-yums. And uh, with that... 
why don't we take a moment, maybe get some yum-yums of your own, and we'll be back in a moment on Obscure. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, it's Christmas time back on Obscure, and Christmas feasting is being done there at Wuthering Heights. Catherine, the only one really keeping the household together, one has to think. The only one with good spirit, the only one of a benevolent nature, and she's keeping the whole thing just barely stitched together. Rescuing Heathcliff from the garret where he has been banished for what? For the for the for the crime of smashing hot applesauce into that little shithead Edgar's face. Well, he had it coming, did he not? He did. And you know he hasn't eaten in a day, and so she's bringing him down to the kitchen, and they're gonna have a little food. He went down. I set him a stool by the fire and offered him a quantity of good things, but he was sick and could eat little and my attempts to entertain him were thrown away. He leant his two elbows on his knees and his chin on his hands and remained wrapped in dumb meditation. On my inquiring the subject of his thoughts, he answered gravely, I'm trying to settle how I shall pay Hindley back. I don't care how long I wait, if I can only do it at last. I hope he will not die before I do. For shame, Heathcliff, said I. It is for God to punish wicked people. We should learn to forgive. No. God won't have the satisfaction that I shall, he returned. I only wish I knew the best way. Let me alone and I'll plan it out. While I'm thinking of that, I don't feel pain. But, Mr. Lockwood, I forget these tales cannot divert you. I'm annoyed how I should dream of chattering on at such a rate and your gruel cold and you nodding for bed. I could have told Heathcliff's history all that you need here. In half a dozen words. Well, then why didn't you do it, Mrs. Dean? Here I am doing your voice from uh, chapter upon chapter when I wasn't expecting that. And we're getting, yeah, we're getting the juicy detail. Yeah, it's all vivid and scenic. But if you could have said it in six words, why didn't you do that? 
I mean, here we've forgotten about poor Mr. Lockwood sitting there with his gruel gone cold, his head nodding to his chest. I guess maybe we need a little interlude, you know, from your telling of the tale. Maybe Lockwood will drag himself off to bed and up to bed and reflect on what he's heard. Well, let us continue and see if that is what happens. Thus, interrupting herself, the housekeeper rose and proceeded to lay aside her sewing. But I felt incapable of moving from the hearth, and I was very far from nodding. Sit still, Mrs. Dean, I cried. Do sit still. Another half hour. You've done just right to tell the story leisurely. That is the method I like, and you must finish in the same style. I'm interested in every character you have mentioned more or less. The clock is on the stroke of eleven, sir. No matter. I'm not accustomed to go to bed in the long hours. One or two is early enough for a person who lies till ten. Wait, what? No matter. No, it doesn't matter what how late it is. I'm not accustomed to go to bed in the long hours. One or two is early enough for a person who lies till ten. Well, uh, sure. Okay, I guess you get enough sleep if you're, if you're awake until ten. But, but, you know, Mrs. Dean, she's got to get up. She's got a job to do. She's probably up at dawn. And here you are making her prattle on when, you know, she probably wants to get to bed. Probably wants to curl up, you know, in her big feather bed with a harlequin romance and drift off to sleep dreaming of knights and steeds and heroines and uh, damsels in distress. Because she seems like a romantic in the end, does she not? And we don't know what happened to Mr. Dean yet, but maybe we never will. But we do have a sense of Mrs. Dean and her character. And she's an old softy, just like they all are. Even Heathcliff's an old softy. You know why? Because Emily Bronte's an old softy. All the Bronte sisters are. I say that without any evidence whatsoever. But I like to think of people as old softies, and so I shall. You shouldn't lie till ten. There's the very prime of the morning, gone long before that time. A person who has not done one half his day's work by ten o'clock runs a chance of leaving the other half undone. Yeah, she's saying, dude, I gotta get to bed, okay? Like, I I understand, like, I'm the employee here and whatever, but, okay, like, I have to get half of my shit done before ten. You can lay in bed all you want. I can't do it. Is Lockwood gonna listen? No, he's not. Nevertheless, Mrs. Dean, resume your chair, because tomorrow I intend lengthening the night till afternoon. I prognosticate for myself an obstinate cold, at least. I hope not, sir. Well, you must allow me to leap over some three years. During that space, Mrs. Earnshaw... No, no, I'll allow nothing of the sort. Are you acquainted with the mood of mind in which, if you were seated alone, and the cat licking its kitten on the rug before you, you would watch the operation so intently that Puss's neglect of one ear would put you seriously out of temper? Or terribly lazy mood, I should say. So he's saying, have you ever been like staring at a cat and the cat's doing its job? You know, it's kind of cleaning itself off. And then, and you're so invested in it that if the cat were to miss, for you know, forget its ear, you'd be PO'd about it. You'd be like, cat, get, get back and clean your ear. You know, well, that's how he feels about this story. He's very invested. A terribly lazy mood, I should say. On the contrary, a tiresomely active one. It is mine at present, and therefore continue minutely. I perceive that people in these regions acquire over people in towns the value that a spider in a dungeon does over a spider in a cottage to their various occupants. And yet the deepened attraction is not entirely owing to the situation of the looker-on. They do live more in earnest, more in themselves, and less in surface change and frivolous external things. I could fancy a love for life here almost possible. 
and I was a fixed unbeliever in any love of a year's standing. One state resembles setting a hungry man down to a single dish, on which he may concentrate his entire appetite and do it justice. The other, introducing him to a table laid out by French cooks, he can perhaps extract as much enjoyment from the whole, but each part is a mere atom in his regard and remembrance. Oh, here we are the same as anywhere else when you get to know us, observed Mrs. Dean, somewhat puzzled at my speech, as I am puzzled as well. And so what we have here is a little bit of romanticizing on the part of Mr. Lockwood, who finding himself in exotic circumstances, that of the Moors, where he has escaped from London town, he is uh, doing what, what, uh, what everybody does when they find themselves in new circumstances and situations. He's exoticizing the inhabitants of the region and he's saying that they are somehow different than the people he has known before. And, of course, that is simply not true. Even the, the good southern gentlemen that I have met here over these last few weeks really bear all the resemblance in the world to the gentlemen I have met up north and, indeed, around the world, such as my travels have taken me, which is not very far around the world at all. But I have gone some places and met some people. You know, folks is folks. When you get right down to it, and we do get right down to it, and yeah, certain things are different here and there, but, you know, the spider in the dungeon ultimately is no different than the spider in the cottage, though it may believe itself so. There is something to be said for the hungry man sitting down at the table with a single dish, simple food, and finding it utterly delicious because of his hunger, whereas the fellow who wants for nothing and is given a 12-course meal by the fancy French French chef, yeah, he'll enjoy it. Absolutely he'll enjoy it. But he will not be able to experience each atom of it in the same way that the fella who uh, maybe has been starved for some chicken thighs and broccoli will experience his simple meal. It's perspective, you know, it's all perspective. Uh, so she's saying, you know, we're, we're the same as anywhere else, and I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And he says, excuse me, I responded, you, my good friend, are a striking evidence against that assertion. Excepting a few provincialisms of slight consequence, you have no marks of the manners which I am habituated to consider peculiar to your class. Snob. He's being a snob. I'm sure you have thought a great deal more than the generality of servants think. Oh, he's being awful now. I'm sure you've thought more than most servants think. What the hell is he talking about? Well, now we're learning something about Lockwood, something we don't care for at all. I mean, this is not the America that I know, where everybody is free and equal, and everybody, there is no classism here, but apparently the America in which Mr. Lockwood lives is different. You have been compelled to cultivate your reflective faculties for want of occasions for frittering your life away in silly trifles. Mrs. Dean laughed. I certainly esteem myself a steady, reasonable kind of body, she said. Not exactly from living among the hills and seeing one set of faces and one series of actions from year's end to year's end. But I have undergone sharp discipline, which has taught me wisdom. And then I have read more than you would fancy, Mr. Lockwood. You could not open a book in this library that I have not looked into, and got something out of also, unless it be that range of Greek and Latin, and that of French. 
and those I know from one another, it is as much as you can expect of a poor man's daughter. However, if I am to follow my story in true gossip's fashion, I had better go on, and instead of leaping three years, I will be content to pass to the next summer, the summer of 1778. That is nearly 23 years ago. And that is the end of chapter 7. So we will be going back in time 23 years from 1801 back to 1778, just after, or I guess uh, during the American Revolution. Now, I don't know how they were fighting there at Wuthering Heights, which side they were on there at Wuthering Heights in America, but uh, hey, whatever. Um, so there we are. We'll end it there. I mean, you know, anytime the chapter ends and you're close to the end of the episode, good to just end it there. Breathe out, you know, sigh contentedly from the food we've just digested, that of the physical kind and the mental kind. We are sleepy. Yes, we are. I hope you are curled up in bed listening to this episode. I am probably not long for consciousness myself. Um, well, who am I kidding? It's only 8 o'clock. But, uh, oh, it's quarter after 8. Wow, geez, it's late. Um, but I do feel a bit depleted. A fine episode, I think. You know, we're, we're making some progress here. We're all the way on chapter 8. How far into the book are we? We're on page 57. And... Oh, geez. I mean, it just goes on and on. You know, 300 pages. We're, we're, uh, we're, you know, it's going to take us a while. So I hope you're buckled in. I hope you're ready to go exploring America with me as we traverse the Wuthering Heightsian moors on another delectable episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.